excited to get to have a brand new series starting and really sort of a milestone on this podcast. This is the first time in all the years and incarnations of this uh, group that we have ever actually just taken a look at a biblical book and spent some time working through that book on its own terms. We've spent lots of time looking at themes and things like that, but this will be an interesting new move for us. And uh, so join us for this conversation. Uh, We're going to take a look at um, what is one of the lesser known, but really, really interesting and engaging books in the Hebrew scriptures. It's the book of Esther and uh, Sarah, you got some good background information to help us get settled for folks who are scratching their heads knowing, saying like, I don't know anything about this book, right? Yeah, yeah. So we want to start with just some basic background information just so that we all kind of know where we are literary and historically. Um, because Esther is like, is kind of an odd book in the Bible. You know, it's it's one of those things that there's been a lot of debate by biblical scholars is that, is this a simple historical account? Or is it supposed to be a literary, you know, literary piece of work that is loosely based off of actual historical events? Um, it, it's, it, it has this focus on an individual, you know, Esther, as well as the nation of Israel. Um, it, it, it kind of ask the questions of good triumphs over evil, but does the ends justify the means? Um, you know, and it's, and it's, but I think at its basis, it is a testimony story. Mm-hmm. Both the testimony of Esther, an individual, a person, as well as Israel's testimony about, you know, who they are as a group of people. So, but backing up, when was this book written? Well, there's, again, lots of histor- a lot of debates from um, scholars as to when this was written. Um, probably sometime between the years 465 uh, BCE, so before Christ or before the Common Era, and 70 CE, which is when Josephus um, referred to the story in one of his documents. So we know that by the year 70, it was for sure written. And on the other side, the, the early side, the events in this story take place uh, during the, the Persian reign over the, the... So this is after the Babylonian exile when Persia is the next empire on yes. the scene. So that tells us that that's on the early side. It can't have happened before that would have happened. Right. And it gives us sort of the bookends. Of it, but it also has to exist by the time Josephus refers to it. Yes, okay. yes, yes, yes. Um... By looking at, at the actual Esther text, the dating formulas that they used would suggest that the book was probably written as early as the 5th century BCE, so during the Persian Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was probably written in that early time frame of uh, 550 to 450 BCE, mm-hmm. as opposed to later. So like the first set of dates, that was the, the like that's the big window of its prop. Like it had to have been written sometime between these dates. But probably, most likely, we can shrink that window to about 100 years during the actual Persian Empire. Okay. And maybe it's helpful, too, to note that like other biblical books in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, 
if they were written a lot later, they'll sometimes drop hints about that. Like if they say things like, and eventually the temple was destroyed, like that tells you it must have been written after the temple was destroyed. Or um, uh, in the book of Ruth, uh, at the end, you get this sort of the wink of like how the book of Ruth turns out to be a prequel for the story of David. Well, that only makes sense if that book's written you know, well after David, somebody who's worth remembering. Um, so in a way similar, we don't get anything like that here that you might have expected. If, some, if this came a lot later, you might get more of those winks about like, and this story led to blah, 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 but yes. we, we don't get that. Okay. So we do know quite a bit about the Persian Empire. Uh, they were around from 545 to 538. Um, and during that time period, they conquered the whole of the Middle East, including Palestine, um, modern-day Israel. And um, we know so much about them because Herodias, a Greek historian, he liked to write about their kings. So, you know, we had to kind of take it with a grain of salt because they, like, the Greeks and the um, Persian Empire are like, did not get along. Um, but he has like this really weird thing for Xerxes, the king who is in Esther. So he wrote a lot about Xerxes. Like he just thought he was so handsome and so <laughs> tall and just the best king ever. So we, we really know a lot about the historical person of Xerxes. Um, but uh yeah, so Xerxes reigned from 486 to 465, and then he was succeeded by his son, Artaxerxes. So he kind of named his son after himself, <laughs> and kind of not, like... Yeah. But that is, uh, that is where we are set, is in the Persian Empire by Xerxes. Okay. And maybe to fit this in, what's going on in the biblical story uh, up to this point... Uh, like imagine this is like the yellow Star Wars crawl at the beginning of a Star Wars movie. Um, th- this comes like in the, in that period of biblical history that at least for me as a kid was the part we never got around to in Sunday school. Like for me, like the Sunday school stories were like really heavy on the Exodus stories and the miracles and uh, even even King David. And then like it wasn't really until I was a teenager that I'd ever heard anything about this exile business. That sounded so sad. And then this is even after that, after the Babylonians have come and gone, have been conquered by the next empire on the scene, the Persians. And this is a time hundreds of years before Jesus comes on the scene. Um, and this is almost one of the last story stories we get before that intertestamental period that um, Protestant Bibles, which is, it's like this black hole that we just don't want to know what even happens. Hanukkah somewhere, but, um, but it's in that period after the Babylonian exile. Some people maybe have gone back home to the land, but still they're all subjects of a foreign empire now it's the Persians. And you had mentioned, maybe this is an important note too, that sort of the Persian king, uh, the world history knows him by the name Xerxes. Mm-hmm. Our Bibles may write that name differently. And this is part of the challenge of bringing foreign names with other alphabets into English letters. Is that how, you, how is this name pronounced exactly? We think Xerxes maybe, but your English Bible may, may, may spell it with an A, an A-H-E, it may, may pronounce his name or spell his name Ahasuerus with a totally different spelling, and you might wonder, how does anybody get Xerxes from that? Probably the same historical figure that we're talking about here. And for our purposes, we're just going to refer to him as Xerxes, um, in part because it's fun to say names that starts with an X, but also uh, because it's probably how he's most famously known in the rest of the world. Um, but in case you're following along in this series and want to know, who's the Xerxes fellow? I'm, I'm, I'm reading a guy with an A name. That's who we're talking about. 
Yeah, and I also think it's important to notice who the king following Xerxes is. And that's because um, Artaxerxes is most likely the son of Vashti. Mm, mm -hmm. um, that uh, Vashti is not an actual name. It sounds a lot like the Persian word for beautiful woman, and is probably the queen that Herodotus wrote about, um, who was queen when Xerxes campaigned against the Greeks, and therefore is the mother of Artaxerxes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think that's important for us to notice when we're reading, especially the first chapter or two of Esther, where Vashti is disposed. Mm -hmm. that she is most likely the mother of the next queen. Yeah, yeah. And just because she lost her power doesn't mean that her son did. Yeah. And maybe also worth noting too, I think it's interesting you mentioned that the, the word that now we treat like a proper name probably wasn't originally, but now in retrospect, I know plenty of people who have been given the name Vashti, like in the centuries and the thousands of years since this story, and it has become a proper name, uh, but probably had more of a title. Sort of like we do sometimes with, with Satan, we treat it like a proper name when it was really a title for the, the adversary sort of figure, but we now treat it like it's a proper name, like Phil or Susan or something. Right. Okay. Um, any other things that seem like important background stuff that we should make sure we get before we actually dig into how the story goes? Uh, yes, I think a big thing going into the story is recognizing that nowhere in the story are we going to get hear or see the name of God. Yeah, that's an interest, and that makes it an oddity in really almost all the Bible, right? Yeah, yeah, this is the only book in the Bible that does that. Yeah, and... Um, We'll have to talk as the story goes on, just because the name or the, the word God doesn't show up. There's, there's lots of theology going on and lots of sort of winking, sort of a, where's, where's God's work or God's hand in it. But one of the things that makes this an interesting story, I think, and maybe really helpful for our day-by-day -day life is that most of the time in our lives, we don't get like God's appearance with parting clouds and like a you know, signed letter, hi, this is God telling me what to do. Um, and... Most of the time, God's presence in our lives, we're sort of left scratch on our heads, sort of figuring, squinting, is this where God was? And that's very much Esther's story, is trying to figure out where God is leading her, what she's supposed to do, without a booming voice. Like, whereas you get in, in like, the Exodus stories, God talking to Moses left and right, telling him, is that, do this, do that, and zapping him when he doesn't do things exactly right. And we don't get that in this story. Yeah, I think that might be a good focus as we read the book of Esther, that look for where you see God active. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then at the end of our series, we can revisit that question and talk about where is God active in this story? Like, why is this still an important book for the Bible, even though God's not mentioned? Yeah. I think that's, that's a really helpful piece, because sometimes we approach the historical books of the scriptures and treat them like, oh, do I really have to know this? What does it have to do with my life? And this may be a story that the exercise of going through it turns out to be really helpful, not because you're likely to find yourself in ancient Persia, but because we do have to do that ongoing work of discerning where, where's God and I, how would I recognize it, and what's the difference between God telling me something and just like my weird whim or gut feeling or something, and where do those overlap? Okay, and so before we jump into chapter one, yeah, because um, we, we never have a work cited for um, on our podcast, <laughs> I feel compelled to mention that if you want to know more information about the background of the Book of Esther, I got all of this information from 
the book Esther by Deborah Reed, which was written or published in 2008 by University Press. Thanks. So go read that book. That's where I got all my notes. Uh, one other thing, before we dig into the, te the text of the first story, the first chapter, that maybe I, I want to poke at just a little bit. And you would said at the beginning that there's um, a certain open question about how much of this story is straight out of the textbook history and how much of this feels like a novelization or something like that. And yes. to see that as, as a continuum, I think, is important rather than is this a true or false story. It, that, that seems to be sort of a, we like those kind of categories of is it, is it completely exactly what happened or is this a novelization? You know, I, nobody was there in the room likely recording down exactly what Esther said. So there's a certain amount of here's how the story got handed to me until somebody finally wrote it down. In a, in a way, and this is one of those half-formed thoughts, so bear with me here, but like many, many, many people these days are familiar, at least familiar, even if they haven't seen it with Hamilton, the musical that Lin-Manuel Miranda is so famous for, right? So, and obviously this is a story about historical figures who actually lived, and yet nobody in their right mind thinks that the actual original founding fathers or characters in that story spoke and rap or danced the way they did. It's just sort of a suspension of disbelief, and it's not that it's a lie, it's more like, okay, I'm telling this story, but there's things that clearly he... As a, as a composer, as a writer, has taken from history and said, there's what connections I want to make for the, the people in the time that he's writing for us all these hundred years later. And in a way, I think it's helpful maybe to consider that maybe how stories like Esther's get, got held on to. That it wasn't just they remembered everything that ever happened and it was all dry like a historical textbook, but like there were some stories that were held on to for a purpose because of how they spoke to God's people later on. And what, what we see at the end of this story about the threat that, that uh, threatens to wipe out all of the, the Jewish people becomes an issue that like threatens Judaism for centuries, for millennia after, and still in our you know, recent memory, I mean, it's, it's still anti-Semitism is, is a huge issue even in 21st century America, but we are not that far removed from the ovens of Auschwitz either. So that the, this is something that, that the people of Israel, the Israelites, had to deal with, and how are we going to process when people want to wipe us all out? Um, th this story has continue, continued to have relevance like that, and maybe part of why a story like this was remembered the way it was. All right, all, all those things said, are we ready to, to jump into how the story begins then? Yes. Okay, cool. How, how should we do that? We're, we want to open with, uh, like Coraline Maria says, at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Um, and that means chapter one. Um, we're not, we're not necessarily going to ask that if you're listening with us that you follow along verse by verse, but the opening chapter of this story sort of does some of the interactive work. It says this story happened in the days of King Xerxes, the same Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia and sort of sets out the historical era in which the story begins, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, just a cool little factoid, Xerxes does appear in another place in the Bible. He appears in Ezra, the fourth chapter, as the Persian king who opposed the rebuilding of the temple. Nice. So, fun fact. Yeah. <laughs> um, and maybe it's worth noting, too, we're going to be running into figures... Uh, in this story whose names are very, very different from ours and even different from a lot of uh, biblical-sounding names in the Old Testament. Like, we get used to names like Zephaniah and Isaiah and Zeremiah. There's almost a, a pattern to how a lot of Hebrew names are, are uh, spelled and pronounced and formed, but we're going to be headed into a lot of names that are a little bit out, outside of even, even biblical uh, uh, familiarity, and maybe we'll just need to deal with them as, they, as we go along the way. But at this point, we've got King Xerxes, or King Ahasuerus, and 
his queen uh, is named Vashti, but as you said, that may be a title uh, originally that now we treat like a, a proper name. But there's Queen Vashti, um, who is uh, uh, sort of the, the other centerpiece of the royal family at this moment. And there's there's big parties going on in the mm-hmm. opening scene of the story. What, would, what, what else do we need to know in, the, in this opening scene? So, so it, it, I, think I think Esther, the book, does a very good job of setting this historically, right? Like, we are, you know, we're told exactly which king this is. This is Xerxes. Um, this is the, it opens up in the third year of his reign, which if we are speaking about the historical Xerxes, this, uh, this banquet would have been set immediately after the successful campaigns in Egypt and Babylon of expanding the empire. So, like, Xerxes is riding on a highway right now. Like, mm-hmm. he is successful, he's a young, handsome king, and he is going to show off his wealth. And the, another thing that I love about whoever wrote this book is they make the Persians seem absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> so when we're told that this banquet is 180 days, we're supposed to realize that that is really silly, really ridiculous, really extravagant, and we're supposed to laugh a little bit about the ridiculousness about the Persians. I think that's a really good point. That like sometimes we we forget that the Bible is allowed to be funny and intends to be funny, and like that that the humor is purposeful. Like um, that the, the 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 biblical writers don't punch down, but they punch up. That like if you're if you're mocking the empire for its sheer indulgence and and ridiculousness yeah sometimes the emperor needs to be told he's wearing no clothes and sometimes you need to be able to say the empire in this case the persian empire was an awful full of itself and sort of like wallowed in its self-indulgence and yeah so we get this scene like there's a whole paragraph describing the decorations at the big party that lasted for half a year i mean like that's a long party, and on top of that, like there's great detail about there's uh, the, the the marble curtains and the or the, the marble pillars and the white cotton curtains and the blue hangings and touches of gold and silver. Like, th- like this is the the decorating committee has described exactly what they did here, um, and it seems like it's all about King Xerxes wants to show off to everybody else how great he is. Like he's just obsessed with showing everybody how awesome he thinks he is. And it's not just look at my temples or look at my buildings and my palace and my wealth there, but it's also look at my lovely wife. And so there's this point early on where, as, as verse 10 in the first chapter says, on the seventh day, when the king was merry with wine, which is the Bible's delightful euphemism for drunk, um, he commanded uh, the eunuchs to bring in Queen Vashti. This is one more thing he wants to show off. So this is like, this is... This is the, the, the trophy spouse sort of situation. Right? This, this is not like a story about the king and the queen are deeply and truly in love and they live in like the Disney you know, castle. This is like a, an arrogant jerk emperor who um, only is interested in people applauding how awesome and how great and wealthy he is and now on top of that come and see my trophy wife as well and Vashti is not is interested in that. No, because she's writing her own banquet. Yeah. Women <laughs> right. And that's because in Persian culture, it was like the queen would not be at events where there were drinking. That so, since there was an abundance of wine at uh, Xerxes' banquet, Vashti couldn't be there. So she had to go and throw her own party if she wanted to have a party because 
She wasn't allowed to be where there was, you know, drunk behavior. Mm-hmm. Like, because, you know, when you get drunk, there's leering. And you can't leer at the queen. Like, that's super in poor taste. It's, so, yeah, she's not supposed to be there. And it's interesting, like, even, even before we get to any action in the plot, just this sort of sets up. That the king is perfectly happy to show off the queen to other people. And then the moment he thinks that there could be anything that where, where someone could be a threat to his claim on his wife. No, 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 you can't be at my party except when I want to show off. And then I will put her back where she... Like, like it's almost like the person who wants to get like his prized baseball out of the trophy case. And you may look at it and then uh, you may not touch it. I will put it away. Like, th- and this, is, this is all about Xerxes the jerk. Uh, and not about, um, oh, how much they are deeply in love. This is about power and about showing off, not about their, their deep affection for one yeah, another. Yeah, typically the wives would be there during the actual like eating of the meal, and then as soon as the wine came out, yeah. the wives would leave and the concubines would come in. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, you know, it, it's one of those things that if I was bashy in this situation and I was invited to come when the drinking had come, like, well, insult. Like, here you are, the queen... The wife of Xerxes, and he's treating me like a concubine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, in the background, makes an awful lot of sense then of why, when the king summons uh, Vashti to come and be paraded off, she refuses. She doesn't want to come. And I, I think it's, it's noteworthy, too. This isn't like... I don't think in any way it's fair to say she's the, the villain or has done something wrong. She has simply spoken up for herself and said, no, I don't want you to treat me like I am property, uh, even though that's very clearly what the understood assumption is. Um, and yet uh, she gets deposed by, because of the, the fallout from saying, no, I'm not going to go uh, when you summon me. Well, he's not just bringing her out. I mean, he wants her decked to the nines. All right. royal, Wearing the royal crown. Everything. So it's not just the queen showing up just for the queen to show up, but like showing, again, his wealth mm-hmm. and saying all the things that she has as queen. So so this is such an interesting note. <laughs> the text says wearing a crown, but rabbinic tradition says yeah. that she wasn't supposed to wear anything else. Yeah, yeah That's yeah. not in the text right. anywhere. But, like, there's this tradition, by, you know, by rabbis that say, oh, yeah, she's supposed to come naked. And it's like, well, uh, that's not in the text at all, so I'm not really sure where right. that came from. But it's been held on to for more than 2,000 years now, so, the, so maybe. It seems at the very least, like, the, that rabbinic interpretation makes it clear. This isn't the king going, oh, I'm so lonely here at the royal banquet. Oh, please, let me have my soulmate, my dear wife Vashti uh-huh. at my side. This is, whatever it is, it's about parading off his possessions, and he sees her as one more possession. Again, this is not, this is not new. This is not the first time in history this ever happened, nor was it the last. Um, but I think it's significant that, like, at, at no point is Xerxes sort of, like, uplifted as the model king who really understands wise leadership and being a good husband. This is a, a guy in the midst of a giant, drunken party who wants to show off his, his power and his wealth and his possessions and what he thinks makes him great. Oh, and if he's drunk and the rabbinical tradition is true, mm-hmm. it makes even more sense why Gashi's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Um, excuse you, my body is for you here, not yeah. for everybody else. Yeah. So another interesting speculation by biblical scholars is that this may have been their wedding banquet. Because this is day seven of a banquet that is for close family and friends, you know, the officials. And that is the length of a typical royal wedding mm-hmm. banquet in mm-hmm. this time period. And they're kind of doing a lot of things that would have been typical for weddings, like the description of the decorations. 
Mm-hmm. There's an abundance of wine. Mm-hmm. Um, they're demanding to see Vashti, which would have been less awkward if it was actually her wedding. It would have been like, hey, we want to wish the bride love mm-hmm. one more time mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Still, like, probably shouldn't have done it, like, super not. <laughs> Xerxes, if this is their wedding banquet, Xerxes is not starting off life as a good husband. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're using gold goblets because uh, Persians, we can tell from, like, archaeological sites that they tended to use like glass and clay goblets for everyday use and then for special occasions especially for royalty they would have brought out gold goblets Mm -hmm. and even more like i'm going to show off my wealth yeah xerxes very much wants to show off yeah and so when this happened when finally vashti is summoned but doesn't come uh Xerxes loses face and is upset about it mm-hmm. and consults his advisors. What should I do about this? And like to me, this is another like funny moment, but like it's it's also uh, it, it, I don't know. It, it it seems almost cartoonish. Like because all the other the, the advisors who are clearly all other men and they're like, well, you can't you can't let this go unpunished because then all the husbands in all of Persia they, they'll have to deal with wives who think and act for themselves too. It's like basically like you can't let her make a decision that you don't like. Because then other women are going to think that they're people also. So I think, again, this is supposed to be... We're supposed to read this as ridiculous. Yeah. Because this speech by one of Xerxes' friends is the longest speech in the book. (laughs) For word word count, it's the longest speech. And it's just... It's ridiculous. And... And yeah, so he, he's very much like, okay, and you know what you need to do? Whatever you decide to do, you need to write it in the law and stick to it. Like, again, how ridiculous. You're mad at your wife, so make a new law. Yeah, yeah. And that, like, he literally comes out and says, this, this advisor, Memnican, says uh, to the king, the, the queen, will, I mean, everybody's going to find out about it. All the women will look with contempt on their husbands. In other words, it, that, like, if if... Vashti stands up for herself and says, no, you can't treat me just like property. My goodness, how terrible other women will think that they're not being, they're not able to be treated like property either. Uh, and husbands all around the land will, will have such a hard time because their wives will, be wanted, will want to be treated like human beings. Um, and again, it, it might be that in different eras, other, other, other listeners to this book or readers of this book might have found it more or less funny or more threatening than, like in our age, one hopes you blush at this and go like, oh my goodness, this is so embarrassing for Xerxes. There's probably been plenty of times in history where people have read this book and said, oh my, you're right, we've got to get them women in check. Um, and probably over the centuries, Christian readers of this story have had a certain amount of, well, maybe these advisors are right. We don't want them women folk to you know, think that they have authority or thoughts or you know, whatever. And there's a certain amount of, of dealing with that and owning and maybe apologizing for that bad reading of this story that that has been done over the century. But that the, says something about how a story reveals something about the reader and the interpreter, uh, that depending on where you're coming from, you may look at this and go, oh, these advisors, they're right. Otherwise, these women will folk start thinking they're, they're you know, people. And others, we can look and go, like, oh, how embarrassing. What, what a hilarious, what a, what a ridiculous proposition, you know? So at, at the end of it, the, the king does take the advice and say, I've got to do something drastic and I've got to even write it in the law. This is a pretty big deal in the story. The idea, they're sort of laying the groundwork for the idea that what the Persians write in the law, you can't change the law as the law as the law. And uh, he, he decides he's, he's going to depose her. He, he, he asks that she can't be queen anymore and she's never allowed to come back before the, queen again, before the king again. Yeah, but she is in 
Right. Which she's, is... she's just... And it doesn't really say, does it? Like, she, I don't think she was completely exiled either. So in theory, she's probably still living somewhere in the, in the harem. Yeah, it's just she's not allowed to be... She's, she right. can't be queen anymore, and she isn't allowed to ever see the king again. But Yeah, and keeping her inside the harem also makes sense, because even though she can't come in front of the king anymore and, like, apologize and get back in his good graces, she's also not sent far away to gather more power and authority right. to mm-hmm. use yeah. against and no contenders can come along and marry her and say, now I've got a claim to the throne because I've married to the former queen or something. Right, right. And, and it's no, like, you know, because she was the former queen, so any children that comes from her right. body could, in theory, have a potential claim to the throne. So, yeah, she's probably still in the yeah. palace in Susa, yeah. just kind of tucked away in the corner, yeah. just... There. This the, this seems to make a lot more sense with the suggestion you've made that Artaxerxes' mom is Vashti. That if that if that's the case, and if he's already in the picture, we don't know that yet. But if he's in the picture, it makes sense that you don't want to jeopardize having the crown. I mean, yeah, if you've got a live heir, you want him and his legitimacy preserved. And how do you do that without keeping the mom as queen? Cool? All right, well, she's not queen anymore, but uh, she's not gotten rid of. That, that seems to solve a couple of problems from Xerxes' standpoint, you know, mm-hmm. like pure power, Machiavellian, Game of thrones kind of a sense. Um, and then uh, the, the very, very last piece of the chapter is not only that she has been deposed, but the king decides to send letters to all of those royal provinces, everything he rules over. And at the very beginning of the book, we heard he rules over 127 provinces. The, the, the rule is that Every man should be master in his own house. And that's where the chapter ends. Sort of like that. Like this isn't just about one impertinent woman who dared to speak her mind, but that all men should always be masters in their house. And again, this seems to play up that like this is meant to expose just how preposterous. I mean, how insecure do you have to be that like it's not just I can't work on my own marriage, but like everybody should be exactly like me and everybody's spouses should be as subservient as I want mine to be. There's, there's, it, 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 it's just like the exaggeration of like how preposterous this is. I wonder if that rule or law was ever used against him. Like, a, you know, a political rival could go and stand in his house and be like, you can't arrest me, I'm master of my own house. <laughs> yeah, like, it, it seems like, and I don't think that would necessarily work because they could just drag him out of the house, but yeah. like, what a cool, smart aleck you way you could end your life. Yeah, 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 fair enough. Um, so that brings us to the end of this chapter, and basically it sort of sets up not only who's uh, who's in the scene and when this is set, but also why there's going to be a vacancy in the queen department. And that's what sets into motion the rest of the plot of this story, that there was a queen, she's deposed, she's not there in the picture anymore, um, and the king is, because he wants to have someone to show off and parade around, uh, is going to be looking for a new queen, which is where the rest of the story goes from there. Other things that are, are helpful or worth us holding on to uh, as, we, as we close up this chapter? Um, not particularly. Um, I, just, I guess we should prepare ourselves for a little bit of a time jump because uh, chapter one is set in the third year of his reign. And I want to say that chapter two starts with his seventh year. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so Vashti was disposed and uh, Xerxes goes on and continues his campaign against the Greeks, which <laughs> we aren't talking like. The Book of Esther does not talk a whole lot about the military goings on at this time, but uh, Xerxes is going to be a little bit preoccupied for a couple of years, so he's going to come back and remember some things when he is back in Susa, and um, 
That's what's going to kick off Esther's story. Fair enough. Well, um, we do hope that as you join us through the rest of this series, that um, you're willing to, to bear with us in, again, looking at a story that maybe is not as familiar, but using it as a great way not only to learn how our stories of the Bible uh, come to be, but also uh, how we look for God's presence in times when things are, are hard to, to suss out sometimes. So join us here for more conversation next time on Crazy Faith Talk. See you all. Bye.